Hi, friends. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the HitSavers app. HitSavers is an app brought to you by Lenny Lewis. She's on the show a while back, and it's going to change your life, folks. You can't change your life overnight, but you can change the direction of it. And it gives you nine actionable steps or habits that you can use to change the direction of your life. And the acronym stands for Hydrate, I Am Grateful Journal, Time's Up, Make My Bed, Silence or Meditation, Affirmation, Visioneering, Exercise, and a Shower. And make sure that shower is ice cold. Because that's it, it's been proven scientifically. The ice cold showers, they wake you up, they remove that morning fog. Really helpful. And little hint. Keep a glass of water next to your bed or bottle for so in the morning you can wake up, get that hydration, and just feel refreshed. You'll feel great. The most successful people in the world have habits that they do every day. If you want to be successful, then you need that kind of routine in your life. The need can also be found on your podcast, Best Morning Routine Ever. And you can get download this app wherever you get your apps. The App Store, the Google Play Store. That might be it. I think that's the only app stores that I'm aware of. Unless there's some weird type of phone that you have. I don't know what Huawei uses. <laughs> okay. But get the HitSavers app. You'll love it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Chris Wright, and I'm the host of the most beautiful podcast that has ever graced this earth. And that that's point-counterpoint, folks. That's point-counterpoint. Punto contra punto. And I'm coming again with, to you to talk about some stuff. Okay. Because I think stuff is important to talk about. As always, the question is, what should I start with? Well, I think one thing that I wanted to mention is this interesting principle called the Fermi Paradox. I want to talk about it, you know, briefly. It's a 
Yeah. Fermi paradox. I think I might have talked about it at some point, actually. And it's this. It's named after the Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi, and it's the apparent contradiction between the lack of evidence of, for extraterrestrial civilizations and the various high estimates for their probability, such as optimistic estimates for the Drake equation. The following are some of the facts that t together serve to highlight the apparent contradiction. There are billions of stars in the Milky Way similar to the Sun. With a high probability, some of these stars have Earth-like planets. Many of these stars, and hence their planets, are much older than the Sun. If the Earth is typical, some may have developed intelligent life long ago. Some of these civilizations may have developed interstellar travel, a step humans are investigating now. Even at the slow pace of currently envisioned interstellar travel, the Milky Way galaxy could be a completely traversed in a few million years, and since many of the stars similar to the sun are billions of years older, the Earth should have already been visited by extraterrestrial civilizations, or at least their probes. However, there is no convincing evidence that this has happened. What's the explanation for this? Well, the cast of ancient aliens would say that they have visited us and they have influenced our civilization already and then who knows what happened to them after that maybe they never left like they could they could be in our genes who knows they could have died of some virus here or they could have just gone back home and never come back their civilization may be completely gone so, of the attempts to explain it, primarily suggesting that intelligent extraterrestrial beings are extremely rare, that of the lifetime of such civilizations is short, or that they, ex they exist, but for various reasons we see no evidence. That kind of brings up as, there could be intelligent life out there, but it's so different from our own, because we're used to seeing, you know, organic life, that is carbon-based life, that follow certain characteristics. So what if there's certain characteristics that we follow that they don't? Although he's not the first to consider this question, Fermi's name is associated with the paradox because of a casual conversation in the summer of 1950 with fellow physicists Edward Teller, Herbert York, and M.L. Konopinski. While walking to lunch, the men discussed recent UFO reports and the possibility of faster-than-light travel. The conversation moved on to other topics until during lunch, Fermi allegedly said suddenly, but where is everybody? Although the exact quote is uncertain. Alright, and I just found out. Hold on. Apparently, apparently Hank Green did a song on it which I was completely unaware about. Caught me completely unawares. And the guy with the shotgun was kind of like, put the gun right on, right on his head, right, brought the shotgun right. Good morning.
Elton John, I have good news for people who like me singing songs. Song Wednesdays are returning. From now until the end of 2010, I'll be doing a new song every single Wednesday. I'm doing this because I have songs stuck in my head, and it's hard to get them out unless I am very motivated to do so. And so, I am motivating myself through Nerdfighteria. I need you to motivate me. This song is a companion song to a video I made a little bit a while ago. A little bit a while ago. Doesn't make any sense. I do hope you enjoy this. In 1950 at Los Alamos, a scientist was talking with his friends. And the conversation had them all fully engrossed about this universe that almost has no end. And as they were all about to return to their study, Enrico suddenly shouted, Where is everybody? And he sat down and did a few simple calculations that indicated we should have been visited thousands of times at least based on his estimations. And that's the Fermi paradox. If they're out there, why don't you hear about the galaxy? Just keep on spinning with 400 billion stars in it. And I just can't believe that we could be unique when there's so much space in this galaxy. Oh, our Pandora's box to be open, but instead we're stuck in Fermi's paradox. There are dozens of ways this paradox can be resolved And you probably can think of some yourself Maybe advanced technology rarely evolves Or maybe God sent them all to hell Or maybe that technology leads to its own destruction Or maybe species lose interest in reproduction Or maybe they're just afraid of what we'll do when we find out So they're hiding until we grow up and don't have the same tendency to frequently freak out if they're out there, why don't they talk? The galaxy just keeps on spinning with 400 billion stars in it And I just can't believe that we could be unique When there's so much space in this galaxy Oh, our Pandora's box To be open, but instead we're stuck in Fermi's paradox Well, the question of whether there is more life out there As far as I'm concerned is moot But it appears that the aliens do not use Foursquare And no, I'm not trying to be cute because the way that we listen is to find by our ears And the time that we've been listening just a couple dozen years We'll be lucky when we see them if we notice them at all Our cosmic phone could be ringing off the hook right now And we're just not answering the call Oh, that's the Fermi Paradox They're out there, why don't they talk? The galaxy just keeps on spinning with 400 billion stars in it And I just can't believe that we could be unique When there's so much space in this galaxy Oh, I want Pandora's box but instead we're stuck in Fermi's Paradox Oh yeah, we're stuck in Fermi's Paradox Oh no, we're stuck in Fermi's Paradox Oh yeah, we're stuck in Fermi's Paradox I'm excited about the return of Song Wen Okay, well that was something That was certainly something Um <laughs> It was educational Um Can't say it was a it's, I Can't say it's gonna be a hit you know, I mean, it's actually a fairly old song. I saw, I've, I noticed. <laughs> yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Um, the next thing uh, is something that I just heard about t just today. Uh, I, was I heard it in a podcast. And uh, I haven't actually gotten a chance to look into it more. So as I'm showing you this, I'm learning with you. And that's part of our new segment on the show. Learning with Chris. Ba -ba -bum. Okay, Fisher's principle. Evolutionary model explains why the sex ratio of most species that produce offspring through sexual reproduction is approximately one to one between males and females. 
A.W.F. Edwards has remarked that it is probably the most celebrated argument in evolutionary biology. Fisher's principle was outlined by Ronald Fisher in his 1930 book, The Genetical Theory of Natural Selection, but has been incorrectly attributed as original to Fisher. Fisher couched his argument in terms of, of parental expenditure and predicted that parental expenditure on both sexes should be equal. Sex ratios that are one-to-one -one are hence known as Fisherian, and those that are not one-to-one -one are non-Fisherian or extraordinary and occur because they break the assumptions made in Fisher's model. The basic explanation uh, gave, the, gave the following simple, W.D. Hamilton gave the following simple explanation in his 1967 paper on extraordinary sex ratios given the condition that males and females cost equal amounts to produce. 1. Suppose male births are less common than female. A newborn male then has better mating prospects than a newborn female and therefore we can expect to have more offspring. Therefore parents genetically disposed to produce males tend to have more than the average number of grandchildren born to them. Therefore, the genes for male-producing tendencies spread and male births become more common. As the one-to-one -one sex ratio is approached, the adva advantage associated with producing males dies away. The same reasoning holds if females are substituted for males throughout. Therefore, one-to-one -one is the equilibrium ratio. In modern language, the one-to-one -one ratio is the evolutionary stable strategy. Fisher wrote the explanation described by Eric Charnov and James J. Bull as being characteristically terse and cryptic. In Chapter 6, Sexual Reproduction and Sexual Selection, in organisms of all kinds, the young are launched upon their careers endowed with a certain am amount of biological capital and derived from their parents. This varies enormously in amount of different species, but in all there has been, before the offspring is able to lead an independent existence, a certain expenditure of nutriment in addition, almost universally, to some expenditure of, of time or activity, which, are, which the parents are reduced by their instincts to make for the advantage of their young. Let us consider the reproductive value of these offspring at the moment when the parental expenditure on their behalf has just ceased. If we consider the aggregate of an entire generation of such a spring, it is, the, it is clear that the total in this group is exactly equal to the total of the females because each sex must supply half the ancestry of all future generations of the species. From this, it follows that the sex ratio will so adjust itself under the influence of natural selection that the total parental expenditure incurred in respect of children of each sex shall be equal, for if this were not so, the total expenditure incurred in producing males, for instance, were less than the total expenditure incurred in producing females, then since the total reproductive value of the males is equal is that the females to that of the females, it would follow that those parents, the innate tendencies of which caused them to, to produce males in excess, would, for the same expenditure, produce a greater amount of reproductive value, and in consequence, would be the progenitors of a largely fraction larger fraction of future generations than would parents having a congenital bias towards the production of females. Selection would thus raise the sex ratio until the expenditure upon males became equal to that upon females. So, in case you didn't think I explained that well, let's have someone else do it. <laughs> Thank you.
Fish's principle is an evolutionary model that explains Okay, let's get a different voice in there. Across the animal kingdom, and indeed all walks of life, there exists a trend. Can I find something else? I, I don't want to put you to sleep. Not that that's a bad thing. Fishes. Um, fine. Principle is an evolutionary model that explains why the sex ratio of most species which produce offspring through sexual reproduction is approximately one to one between males and females. I feel like that's explained exactly like I. <laughs> It sounds like they're just reading a word for word. <laughs> dear. Oh dear. Okay, well. Um. I'll see if I can find something better. This looks a little bit different. Yes, that is different. Okay. Okay. Boy meets girl. It's a tale as old as time, right? Generally, we expect this classic love story to go a certain way because we expect most societies to look like this. But what if the world looked like this? Or like this? Suddenly, that love story becomes a bit different, doesn't it? The ratio of males to females in a population is called the sex ratio, and it can have a pretty big impact. See what I mean? The sex ratio, at its broadest, applies to any species with male and female sexes. But when we use the term sex ratio, we actually could be talking about a few different things. The primary sex ratio is the ratio at fertilization, so the sex ratio of unborn offspring in a population. The secondary ratio recalculates this as the ratio at birth, and the tertiary sex ratio is the ratio at sexual adulthood. There's actually a fourth one as well, the quaternary sex ratio, which calculates the male-female ratio in adults past the age of sexual reproduction. This last one can be a bit problematic since that age varies greatly by sex. But by measuring these four different ratios, you get a good idea of what's going on in a population throughout an average lifetime. Ideally, all of these ratios should stay roughly balanced, but imagine that one of them, let's say the ratio at adulthood, is greatly off. That means that somewhere between birth and adulthood, you have a lot more females dying than males, or vice versa. So now you know there's an issue here that needs addressing. For almost all species, including humans, the average sex ratio is about the same at one to one, which means an average of one male to one female. Ugh. Can't continue watching. Sorry.
I'm not going to create an account with them. Because I don't care about you. Just kidding. I care about you deeply, okay? And if anything were to happen to any of you, I don't know. My life would be ruined. I would just... I'd just fall apart. Okay. Oof. Here's the wind. <laughs> but I like doing it outside. Despite the drawbacks. Okay. Well. Some stuff I wanted to talk about. Let's see, where do I want to start? Okay, the first one is something that I'm very interested in. Uh, it's a post shared on Instagram. Um, very interesting read to me. Uh, something that I'm, I'm glad that people are finally talking about it more. Uh, a time we talk about casual ableism. So I'm just going to read the first little bit of this just to give you an idea of what it's talking about. So, what is it? It's when able-bodied people are considered the norm and people with disabilities are an afterthought. In education, entertainment, accessibility of resources, you might not think you're susceptible to it, but it's ingrained in everyday language. Here's how you can check yourself. So, an example of how many of them can be an afterthought is think of little people or, or midgets. Um, I'm always confused which one to say because I want to say little people because that's that's often what they say they want to be called. But then I then I at the same time I feel like that's too vague. Like is a five foot one man a little person because that's below average height? Or better example, four foot two men. But yeah, I'll I'll, I'll call them that. Um, but th think about think about little people um, in movies and TV shows specifically. When is the last time that you saw one in a film when it wasn't about them being who they are? Like it's it seems like we define them by their disability, which to me is a problem. And it, it somehow takes away the person from it. So, like, for, for example, uh, the movie Elf, Peter Dinklage was in it, and part of, part of the whole, his whole role in that was that he was a little person. Now, I can also see an, an, a counter-argument to that, where... That's the point, because it forces you to focus on that person and not simply just forget about them in society. So even though they are being more sort of exploited, it still forces you to recognize them and see them. Okay. Um... 
and there's even better examples. Um, so like, me one of the actually one of the exceptions to this example might be Game of Thrones, which I shouldn't be talking about it because I only saw one episode <laughs> because I don't have HBO. But so I might be wrong here, but I don't think that's a particularly important part of his role in that. But like in there's a number of movies when they show the the stereotype of the little person that's angry and kicks you in the shin. Which takes advantage of their condition but forces them into the limelight forcing you to accept them which I suppose is a silver lining I don't know okay next part of the post don't use disabilities as an insult uh, lame refers to people with mobility problems like difficulty walking or injured limbs so like don't call things lame I don't know there's there's multiple meanings to it you know there can like uh, the word plant you can plant a tree you can plant a seed of doubt in someone the word the word try you can try to do something or you can or also your I'm tr yeah the word work I'm it's working, or I'm going to work. So, you know, um, when you're calling something lame, you're not really using the, the, the word lame that describes someone who is handicapped. Okay? Next, mongoloid. Both racist and ableist, it comes with the belief that people with Down syndrome look like people from Mongolia. I've never even heard that one before. I don't know, maybe I'm just naive. <laughs> but yeah, it does sound pretty racist and ableist. When I think about it. Yeah. Uh, here's a big one. Disability metaphors are not adjectives or descriptors. I'm so uh, I'm so obsessive compulsive. I'm so OCD. I like my skincare arranged into a neat line. Being organized isn't the same as having OCD, girl. Here's something I was just reading about uh, a little while back. I was reading this book, uh, The Man Who Couldn't Stop. It's by a guy with obsessive-compulsive disorder. One of, the mo one of my favorite parts in the book that I thought was interesting is when he talked about how people complain about when someone... When someone uses the term, I'm a little bit OCD, and then someone else will correct them and say, no, that's be, you're, you can't be a little bit OCD, you don't have the disorder, you're just organized, maybe a little type A. But then he kind of went in there and he kind of said, no, it is possible to be a little bit OCD, because like all mental disorders, it's on a spectrum. Obsessive compulsive disorders on a spectrum, so... Uh, Obviously, th this man, uh, oh, what was his name? He wrote, he wrote The Man Who Couldn't Stop. I can't think of the na his name right now. Um, British guy. Obviously, this guy was farther along the spectrum to be able to be diagnosed with the disorder. But it is possible, but he does say it is possible to be just a, quote, a little bit OCD. 
so you know it's possible because let me explain what OCD is so obviously there's two components to it there's obsessions and compulsions the obsession is the thought it's a thought that you can't get out of your head so let me think of an example so you just close the door and you have this obsessive thought saying I don't think I closed that door right so the compulsion is to go over and then repeatedly jiggle the knob, make sure that you close the door repeatedly, like to the point that it's interfering with your life. And it obviously goes into a lot more areas than simply doorknobs. <laughs> but you know, there's lots of people that have little little bits of OCD. You know, it's. People can be at different levels. People can be at different levels of neuroticism. People can have different levels of depression, OCD, whatever. Some people, I've, I've heard people talk about different things that they are obsessive about a little bit. Like uh, sometimes people will say that they have to have the TV volume at an even number. And if it's not, they'll, they'll have to change it. That's an example. And then, of course, it doesn't interfere with their life, really. It's just a little thing, you know, a little quirk that most people have. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, next part of the post. Replacing ableist terms is easy. Just use words that use, they more accurately represent the thoughts you're trying to express. Uh, instead of saying triggered, say upset. Instead of saying bipolar, say emotional. Instead of saying dumb, uninformed. Instead of saying crazy, unpredictable. Triggered and upset. I would argue they're kind of they're kind of synonyms, you know. They're kind of interchangeable. Whatever. Uh, Bipolar, emotional, well, those are two very different things. Bipolar is, of course, as I'm sure most of you are well aware, <laughs> you know, it's one of the mood disorders characterized by having a manic phase and a depressive phase. And so, yeah, I suppose when most people say that they're bipolar, they're just emotional. Dumb, uninformed. Um, those are kind of two different things. Crazy, unpredictable. Again, can't really replace either one. Yeah. But I suppose I see the problem with calling someone crazy. Because you call someone crazy, and, you know, there's a lot of people that in the past, they would have been called crazy, psychotic, whatever. But now with our better understanding of mental disorders and stuff, we would give them a more proper diagnosis. Uh, next part, to anyone who needs to hear it, retard in any context is a slur. Any version of that word is offensive, harmful, and ableist. Um, it's true when you're talking about like calling someone that, okay? You don't it's, offen it's obviously offensive when you call someone retard, okay? But obviously not in every context. They say in any context, no, it's not. It's, 
a very commonly used term in music, a, a retardando, it just means to slow down. It all means is slow, okay? It's a very simple word, slow. And George Carlin did this great bit. Uh, it was perfect. Let me see if I can find it. I could I could do it myself, but I'd rather have you hear it from him. Here. I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms or euphemistic language. And American English is loaded with euphemisms because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. Americans have trouble facing the truth. So they invent the kind of a soft language to protect themselves from it. And it gets worse with every generation. For some reason, it just keeps getting worse. I'll give you an example of that. There's a condition in combat most people know about it. It's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum, can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables, shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. Then a whole generation went by, and the Second World War came along, and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now, takes a little longer to say, doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock, shell shock, battle fatigue. Then we had the war in Korea, 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time, and the very same combat condition was called operational exhaustion. Hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. Then, of course, came the war in Vietnam, which has only been over for about 16 or 17 years. And thanks to the lies and deceit surrounding that war, I guess it's no surprise that the very same condition was called post-traumatic stress disorder. Still which, of course, the reason they did that is because it, it applies to more than just war. You know, rape victims can, can, can have post-traumatic stress disorder and any stress Thing anyway, but anyway, yeah. I see what he's saying. A hyphen, and the pain is completely buried under jargon. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll bet you, if we'd have still been calling it shell shock, some of those Vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time. Sometime during my life, sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. 
I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. False teeth became dental appliances. Medicine became medication. Information became directory assistance. The dump became the landfill. Car crashes became automobile accidents. Partly cloudy became partly sunny. Motels became motor lodges. House trailers became mobile homes. Used cars became previously owned transportation. Room service became guest room dining. And constipation became occasional irregularity. When I was a little kid, if I got sick, they wanted me to go to the hospital and see the doctor. Now they want me to go to a health maintenance organization or a wellness center to consult a health care delivery professional. Poor people used to live in slums. Now the economically disadvantaged occupy substandard housing in the inner cities. And they're broke. They're broke. They don't have a negative cash flow position. They're fucking broke. Because a lot of them were fired. You know, fired, management wanted to curtail redundancies in the human resources area. So many people are no longer viable members of the workforce. Smug, greedy, well-fed white people have invented a language to conceal their sins. It's as simple as that. The CIA doesn't kill anybody anymore. They neutralize people. Or they depopulate the area. The government doesn't lie. It engages in disinformation. The Pentagon actually measures nuclear radiation in something they call sunshine units. Israeli murderers are called commandos. Arab commandos are called terrorists. Contra killers are called freedom fighters. Well, if crime fighters fight crime and firefighters fight fire, what do freedom fighters fight? They never mention that part of it to us, do they? Never mention that part of it. And some of this stuff is just silly. We know, we all know that. Like on the airlines, they say they want to pre-board. Well, what the hell is pre-board? What does that mean? To get on before you get on? They say they're going to pre-board those passengers in need of special assistance. Cripples! Simple, honest, direct language. There's no shame attached to the word cripple that I can find in any dictionary. No shame attached to it. In fact, it's a word used in Bible translations. Jesus healed the cripples. Doesn't take seven words to describe that condition. But we don't have any cripples in this country anymore. We have the physically challenged. Is that a grotesque enough evasion for you? How about differently abled? I've heard them call that differently abled. You can't even call these people handicapped anymore. They'll say, we're not handicapped, we're handicapable. These poor people have been bullshitted by the system into believing that if you change the name of the condition, somehow you'll change the condition. Well, hey, cousin, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. We have no more deaf people in this country, hearing impaired. No one's blind anymore, partially sighted or visually impaired. We have no more stupid people. Everybody has a learning disorder. Or he's minimally exceptional. How would you like to be told that about your child? 
He's minimally exceptional. <laughs> oh, thank God for that. Psychologists actually have started calling ugly people those with severe appearance deficits. It's getting so bad that any day now I expect to hear a rape victim referred to as an unwilling sperm recipient. And we have no more old people in this country. No more old people. We shipped them all away and we brought in these senior citizens. Isn't that a typically American 20th century phrase? Bloodless lifeless no pulse in one of them a senior citizen but i've accepted that when i've come to terms with it i know it's here to stay we'll never get rid of it that's what they're going to be called so i'll relax on that but the one i do resist the one i keep resisting is when they look at an old guy and they'll say look at him dan he's 90 years young <laughs> imagine the fear of aging that reveals to not even be able to use the word old to describe someone to have to use an antonym and fear of aging is natural, it's universal, isn't it? We all have that. No one wants to get old, no one wants to die, but we do. So we bullshit ourselves. I started bullshitting myself when I got to my 40s. As soon as I was in my 40s, I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, Well, I, I guess I'm getting older. Older sounds a little better than old, doesn't it? Sounds like it might even last a little longer. Bullshit, I'm getting old. And it's okay, because thanks to our fear of death in this country, I won't have to die. I'll pass away. <laughs> or I'll expire like a magazine subscription. If it happens in the hospital, they'll call it a terminal episode. The insurance company will refer to it as negative patient care outcome. And if it's the result of malpractice, they'll say it was a therapeutic misadventure. I'm telling you, some of this language makes me want to vomit. Well, maybe not vomit. Makes me want to engage in an involuntary personal protein spill. Thank you all. I'm not sure which clip it was that has the line where he says... Uh, they don't say slow anymore. They, they, they say minimally exceptional. He said the minimally exceptional part. Like, what's wrong with slow? It's, a, it's just a simple words. He's slow. He's a little bit slow. Or minimally exceptional. Alright. Back to that post. After that little uh, tangent a little bit. Alright, what makes language ableist is negative connotation. It's important that we get rid of that, but it's also important not to infantilize actual disabled people. You can refer to them with the terms they use for themselves, like disabled, autistic, blind, deaf. If that's what they are, that's okay. Okay, yeah. Uh, just because casual ableism is deeply rooted in our language doesn't mean we can't change it. Take that extra step to learn it. Yep. Okay. Um... Let's see, what else? I don't know how much longer I should go. Yo, oh, here's a... Here's a cool post from Greenpeace. Uh, it's just a straw, said 7 billion people. 
plastic problems out of control, plastic free July, ooh, why didn't I know about that, wish I had gone plastic free to July, whatever, I can always start, uh, let's choose a future with cleaner communities and oceans, we couldn't start by refusing to use single pl use plastics and demand the world's pl biggest plastic polluters to invest and reuse. Yeah, so it's one thing if a few people ask restaurants not to give them a plastic straw. It's another thing if 7 billion people say that. Um, here's another post I saw. Uh, corporations do not care about you. Every time it seems like they do, it is a clearly disguised profit motive. Well, that's the definition of corporation. Of course, they care about... Well, they don't care about you personally, of course, because a corporation is not a person. problem is, uh, a lot of these products, I, I assume that's what they're talking about, is some of these deficits and regulations that lead to some rather unhealthy, like, I saw a statistic one time, it was like, out of all the thousands of chemicals that have gone to the FDA for approval in like these different, you know, cosmetics and that kind of thing, like 200 have been tested, only a few have been rejected, it just shows that how much they, how much they don't really check them as much as they should. But yeah, a corporation is not able to care about you because they're not a person, okay? But the people in it, it's not like they don't care about you. If you die, you can't buy their stuff. <laughs> um, I don't want to talk about that anymore. What is this? I don't want to, I don't want to read that. Well, where's that one video I was going to play? Can't find it. I think... Here it is. This is our new sponsor for the show. Are you tired of people complaining about literally everything every day? Do you find yourself overly annoyed by the actions of others? Do you need Focomol? When prescribed by your doctor, Focomol can significantly reduce your ability to give a fuck. P-H-U-C-C-C-U-M-O-L People complaining about masks got you down? Fuck them all. Fuck them all has been tested and proven to help you not give a fuck. I used to give a fuck, but now that I've tried fuck them all, I don't give a fuck at all. If you continue to give a fuck after taking fuck them all, please consult with your physician. Side effects may include insensitivity, lack of care, and an extreme case of money or damn business.
All right. That's, that's about it there. Um, okay. Here's the thing. Someone said, I don't know who needs to hear this. You are significantly closer to being homeless than you will ever be to being a billionaire. Have some class solidarity and stop glorifying your oppressors. That's true. Technically. Doesn't mean you're going to be homeless. All it means is you're closer because the billionaires are very, very rich. Okay? It's hard to, hard to be there. Okay? But if you live in America, you're already in like the top percent of the world, okay? Most people are really poor. Really poor. Most people in America, top 1% in the world, okay? Just remember that. Just a little thought. Food for thought. I like food for thought. That's fun. Um. Oh, yeah, I'm not talking about that. Okay. It's not reopening, it's causal normalization of death for the poor because capitalist fascism has no viable solution that offers protection for the most vulnerable among us while still producing trillionaires. It is reopening, and this is he. What he, one of the things that I've seen a lot is concern over reopening schools. But at some point, we kind of have to because this has been going on for a while. We can't continue on lockdown indefinitely. And it's not. We're not going to be completely safe really until we have a vaccine which apparently apparently they're starting to get go into the testing for which is pretty cool um like i think they're about to start the final stages of the testing on it which i think is interesting but to say capitalist fascism well pick one because true capitalism is not fascism because fascism is it's basically if you take fascism with a Nazi twist on it what it is is it's it's so it's kind of socialism sort of national socialism with like a nationalist twist kind of so like it it is bigger government so like you'll see a lot of people say that's fascism is socialism not completely true but there's a lot of nationalism involved in fascism really it's like it's it's government takeover of a lot of different parts of society but it's not workers in charge in uh, charge of the means of production But no, what we have is not fascism, okay? If it was fascism, there'd be 
Sometimes you don't even engage with them. Uh, what? There's a there's another thing I was gonna share. Um, Brianna Taylor's murder is still out. I don't know why they haven't arrested him. He should be. Ridiculous. Um, undocumented, not illegal. Well, because no one's illegal. Well, people aren't illegal, but their status can be illegal. It's not making them any less of a person to call them an illegal immigrant. All it means is their status is not legal. Um, breaking news, uh, the Trump administration walked back a policy that would have stripped foreign college students of their visas if their courses were entirely online. Uh, so that's that's cool. That would have been a unfortunate that policy. Uh, what else do I want to talk about? Okay. So here's one thing. I've been thinking about let's see one of the things that really annoys me is stupid dichotomies where you're essentially asked to take one position or the other and you're not allowed to take either one. And I'm like, fuck that. Because in these situations, the answer is not one or the other. It's m more nuanced than that. And this is the case with, with abortion, with immigration, with the existence of God even. So... I'll just, the abortion example is probably the easiest to explain that I can get a little bit into the others. Um, so a lot of times people will say, uh, the, the very pro-life people will say, you need, we, need to, we need to protect the embryo from the moment of conception through birth because the cell is a baby the complete pro-choicers, which I realize n not all of them go up to birth, but some of them do. They say, at birth, it's a pile of tissue, you can abort it at any point. And I really don't want to play ball. It's like, who do you want, which team do you want? It's like, what? I, a plague on both your houses. It's like, I don't want you to be able to abort your baby the day before you're going to give birth. And I don't want to admit that a single cell is a human being. It 
will become a human being, but it does not have the same qualities that a human has. Obviously, there, there needs to be a cutoff point, and I don't know where that is. I'm not going to pretend like I do. But the case is also true with immigration, where it's like, well, do you support immigration or do you not? Well, I love immigration. I want as many people in here as possible. But saying that it needs to be open borders, anyone can come in whenever they so choose, is madness. Like, I have a... I have a very open opinion to abortion, <laughs> to uh, immigration. Basically, just let let them in, but also don't let them in just at just whenever they want to come in. Let let them in if they want to come in. Let them in, but also just make sure you know who it is. Like I'm not. A, I don't believe in de deportation unless you literally killed. Unless you're like a literally a mass murderer. You know? But then you're probably just gonna go to a regular prison anyway. So probably not gonna maybe not gonna get deported after that. <laughs> but yeah. And that's the opinion that I believe the majority of Americans have, is this xenophilic restrictionism. Where they, lo they love immigration, and they love different cultures. But they don't want to play ball and say, we need to ab abolish, abolish the borders. Anyone can come in however they want, whatever. And the problem is... If we allow this stupid dichotomy to exist, the restrictionist will become xenophobic eventually. Because no one's there to articulate this xenophobic or ethical restrictionist argument for it. We're, for, we're forced to take, a, to take a side and just dumb things down. It's unforgivable. It's like, well, you have to take a position on this because this person is going to be taking the other position, and that way people can understand the two sides. It's like, why, why does, does there have to be only two sides? Why can't we have that nuance in there? That's that's why I support long form content like podcasts. was I going to say? That's, honestly, that's most of it. A couple things I skipped. That I decided last minute to do.
kind of like Schrodinger's embryo. It's like there, there's people are saying people are trying to say so that it's either alive or it's it's either it's either a human life or it's just a pile of tissue that can be killed. And it's like, what if it's neither? It's it's like the Schrodinger's guy. It's either it's either alive or dead, or something, or both. What if it's both? That's about all I have for you, folks. I'm glad you listened to my two cents. It's been Lit Fam. Namaste. Peace out.